Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise and join today. Today, my guest is Michelle Lamont. Michelle is a professor of sociology and of African and African-American studies and the Robert I. Goldman Professor of European Studies at Harvard University. As a cultural and comparative sociologist, she is the author or co-author of a dozen books and edited volumes and over 100 articles and chapters on a range of topics, including culture and inequality, racism and stigma, academia and knowledge, social change and successful societies, and qualitative methods. Her most recent book, Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World, was published last month. She has earned numerous accolades over the years and is a well-recognized leader in her field. She lives in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Michelle, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's start by talking about your most recent book, Seeing Others. What prompted you to write it and what's its overarching message? I decided to write this during the Trump years because I felt like after decades of growing inequality, it was challenging to see Latinos, for instance, being vilified. And uh, you had also movements. It seems like the idea of creating a society that was more inclusive was going a little bit backward. And I also wrote a book on the workers, The Dignity of Working Man, where I'm very sensitive to the question of how workers seek to get dignity and respect. So I was interested in how can we give dignity and respect to the largest possible number. So that book is my attempt to tackle that question. You make a point early in the book that really stuck with me. You said, whether groups are recognized and afforded dignity is just important to their flourishing as human beings, just as vital to their drive to be all they can be. Talk about why that's so important. Well, I think our society, American society, is extremely well-equipped to convince people that getting rich is important. And yet, we're not necessarily equipped to understand why and how people struggle to feel respect and why groups that are even very poor in resources, like low-income people, would want to have respect as well. So the goal of the book was really to give people a vocabulary to try to make sense of how this works and how... Being seen through the eyes of others is essential to our self-concept. And there's also very important books, for instance, The Science of Dignity by Hitlin and Anderson, that offer very compelling evidence that just at the level even of subjective well-being and physical well-being, both are essential to us doing well. So the flourishing of human beings really requires respect. When you are one of those marginalized populations and you, know, you live sort of day-to-day having that sort of weight on your shoulders. Yeah. I mean, it can't help but affect your mental and physical health. Yeah, and I think that discourse we have in our society today, like criticism of uh, woke culture, kind mm -hmm. of underestimate how essential it is to everyone. It's not only for 
Black people or downwardly mobile working class people. It's for absolutely everyone, for children who want to be seen by their parents through the eyes of their parents. So we know, for instance, uh, since your audience is partly interested in work, that surveys of why work is important to people is that what people find rewarding is not only the money they get from their work, but also the relationships in the work context. It really allows them to gain self-actualization and a lot of other yeah. things. It can also be a source of alienation. But the relationship, even in work that is alienating, becomes often important to people. So uh, we have to think more about these things. I mean, we spend more of our waking hours at work than we do doing pretty much anything else. And so it's only natural that it is an important part of our identity and how we look at ourselves. And as you say, to our self-actualization. The fear of downward mobility that has come after, especially to the 2008 recession, has led many people to overwork. And with overwork came often anxiety about downward mobility and also a sense of being overwhelmed. So I think we also need to learn to reflect on uh, what uh, work does to our psyche, you know, both the positive and the negative aspect and try to maximize the positive impact as opposed to, you know, just feeling like we are on this hedonistic treadmill of working really hard to accumulate more, which may lead people to be totally depleted and anxious. So we need to keep things in balance. You talk about it in the context of the American dream, you know, the idea that any of us can do or be anything that we want to be, that we can raise our station in life, that each generation is going to be better off than the ones before it. And it inspired so many people to come to the U.S., what drives Americans, whether you're born in the United States or an immigrant, to to strive for more. But achieving that, that ideal is a lot harder for some people than it is for others. Exactly. And it often goes hand in hand with this ideology of meritocracy, which says that people who succeed very well have more work ethic, self-control, all kinds of things that are viewed as morally superior. And this meritocracy myth doesn't take into consideration the fact that we start with very different starting points, right? With If you have parents, if you live in a neighborhood with good schools, it's like being on an escalator. It facilitates everything. And uh, at the same time, since we live in societies, it's true of the UK as much as the US, that where college-educated professionals are constantly celebrated in the media, it's very easy, I think, for working-class people to see themselves as losers because they never see very positive images of themselves reflected on the Netflix series that they watch, for instance. So uh, it feeds, I mean, the American dream, there's no question, has brought generations upon generations of immigrants to the U.S. And it has something very positive to say, you know, you can be what you want to be. The downside is exertion and exhaustion for those who are striving too much, but also implicitly the message is those who don't succeed in the same way are viewed a little bit as second-class citizen, especially if they cannot totally survive by themselves, if they need to use public resources, then they commit the dual sin of uh, lacking self-reliance, which is almost as bad as not being a poorly mobile. (laughs) The welfare recipients, immigrants, any group that is viewed as depending on um, collective resources is totally condemned, especially by the working class. When I did this book, The Dignity of Working Man, 
I would ask them questions such as, what kind of people do you feel inferior or superior to? And the main categories they pointed to are people like renters, because they're viewed as not able to accumulate, and welfare recipients, of course. And then, of course, they often associated these categories with ethno-racial minorities. So the the moral uh, condemnation would cover at once the class groups in the lower half of the social structure, but also ethno-racial minority, both feeding each other. Ultimately, we are more than our race, ethnicity. We are more than our economic status in life. I mean, you argue in the book for sort of a broader definition of viewing the worth of a person, right? In terms of how we view ourselves or how we view others. Exactly. The argument is very much that we need to move from a single hierarchy based on socioeconomic success and competitiveness, our ability to succeed materially, to a plurality of ways of understanding who's worthy that this is really important to having a more uh, healthy society, one where plurality of people can succeed because we have a plurality of criteria of worth. So, for instance, really giving true worth to caregivers, people who take care of the elderly and children, you know, or spiritual leaders and many other activities that may be underappreciated. Talk about elementary school teachers who play such yeah. a crucial role in our society. So. Absolutely. Or people who work in the care fields, you know, that also are typically underpaid relative to the value that they bring to society. You mentioned a minute ago, on the flip side, you've got the people who do have that escalator working in their favor, but they still have that fear of falling economically, as you say, that really came to a head after the economic crisis, which can become all-consuming, right? This idea of the hedonistic treadmill, as you called it, the hyper-competition with people around them who there's always somebody who has more. There's always somebody who's wealthier. There's always somebody who is seemingly more successful. And then people end up staying in jobs that don't make them happy or that they just Mm -hmm. don't feel like they're successful at because they're fearful of losing that status in life. How do you get yourself off that treadmill? Often it's a mental health crisis. There are conditions where people have no choice but to re-examine what they're doing. One of the objectives of the book, I should say, the book is based on 185 interviews with change agent, people like stand-up comic or Hollywood creative, whose job it is to create new narratives that encourages people to think differently about groups that are marginalized. So I give the example of the show Transparent, which presents a middle-aged trans woman who becomes trans late in life, and then she has to negotiate her identity with her adult children, and you really see all the complexities of this. But there's also 80 interviews with college students who were, at the time we interviewed them, Gen Zs, and uh, they are people People who, for the most part, don't believe in the American dream because they were preceded by the millennials who got on the job market with the Great Recession, were never able to buy houses. So this dream of the white picket fence seems increasingly unreachable, and that has created a lot of mental health problems for these generations. But it also brings them to create another ideal of what they think life should be about. And inclusion is very much at the center of what they want. So therefore, some of them are fighting for, you know, pronouns that are not binary or for uh, restrooms that are unisex. And a lot of boomers just don't understand that. Yeah. So they think these are snowflakes or just too fragile. But the book really makes a case that we need to pay attention to that generation, in part because they are sending us messages about how Boomers have screwed up the environment with this obsession with the big cars and the lawns instead of 
planting trees, we have grass everywhere, which is bad for the environment, etc. So how can we jolt people out of this life where they might be unhappy and really oriented toward being work obsessed and not finding much satisfaction? Well, I think opening our mind to understanding what other generation want, I think it's been productive for me. We cannot, especially if you have children who are young adults, you cannot just buck to your head. You really have to open yourself to understanding what drives them, you know, and yeah. uh, also more generally toward the younger generation who are so upset that the environment is falling into pieces, you know, so really contemplating seriously what future is ahead of us is very important, I think. Yeah, certainly that generation, there is a strong sense that others have spoiled the party for them and yeah. that they're going to be left along with their children and their grandchildren and so on to to deal with the mess that's been created by hmm. the boomers and the Gen X and their parents and grandparents' generations. Exactly. How does that affect from what you learned in your research your interviews with these Gen Z people, how they think about their careers in terms of what they're aiming to do and how they define success. If it's not the American dream, what is it for them? Well, we did 80 interviews. Half of them are from the Midwest, the other one from the East Coast. And Gen Z's mean born after 97. So when we interviewed them in 2019, they were starting college. We re-interviewed them during the pandemic, uh, basically in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement. And what we found is they're American kids. Many of them believe in hard work and being agentic, you know, putting your life together, showing some entrepreneurialism. But unlike many boomers or Gen X, they are very passionate about having a work-life balance and right. they are very attentive to their mental health. They don't think that living for work is good. And they really believe in connecting with other human beings in a very authentic and genuine way. So leading their life in the closet or pretending that they're not who they are is really anathema to them. So in one paper that is really, you know, fed this chapter on Gen Z's, we say that they braid four different themes. One of them is kind of the American dream and hard work. The second one is mental health and work-life balance. The third one is this theme of what I call ordinary cosmopolitanism. The idea that we share a lot as human beings, people are people, and try to reconnect with this and kind of fight against power imbalance, which is so important for Gen Z's. And finally, they identify as Gen Z's, by which they mean both that they are very political generation who want to create social change, but also that they're part of a strong cohort that shares a lot of values. So whereas many demographers argue that we should not use the term Gen Z's because when you analyze the group, you cannot necessarily distinguish what is due to the period, the cohort, the age group. So they think it's just a term invented by marketing experts, and it's not yeah. good social science. But I use it because there's enough young people who use this term to self-define. It's a collective identity that has an existence, whether or not you can operationalize it in terms of social science research. And they really think of themselves very, very differently. Incidentally, I was just at a wedding this weekend in the White Mountains, and it was so interesting to hear their vows that the two, the bride and the groom, exchanged. And they're, in their case, millennial. But it was all about, you know, let's create a community together in a way where we can all be authentically ourselves and grow together. It was all self-actualization. And they often criticize millennials for being me, 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 you know, so self-centered on the me. But at the same time, they are volunteering in uh, community gardens. And they're so skeptical of what's happening in D.C. But they believe in local politics. And 
and they are trying to build the local communities upside from the bottom up, which is, I think, really nice. So I like the part of the book that contains a very strong message of hope. Uh, mm. Because the alternative for them, I mean, for those of us who teach in college, we've dealt with so much mental health crisis with the students for the last few years. And I think they've seen this up close enough that they know that the alternative is really to take their life in their hand where they can and try to create a, a better world now, not wait for 40 years until they can buy a Lexus or whatever. You know, So it's a very <laughs> different way of thinking about how to live your life. Yeah. I want to switch into the corporate world. Diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI is well ingrained in the corporate yeah. world. But but you argue that a lot of DEI efforts kind of fall short. Why is that? Well, here I draw on the work of Frank Dobbin and Sandra Kalev, who authored a book titled Getting to Diversity. And they have a very large data set that allows them to compare the corporations that were able to promote middle-level managers that are more diverse versus those that couldn't. And they show what are the practices that don't work. So they're able to show very clearly that diversity training just pisses off people. People don't like to be told they're racist or sexist. And it doesn't work to ask people of color to be in charge of educating their coworkers who are racist because People of color are already pissed. Why should you ask them on top of it to be in charge of cleaning uh, the right. organizational mess? So their approach, the success is really about making the promotion of diversity a core responsibility for all middle level managers. And that it's not only about adding numbers, but also creating a culture of belonging. Well, that's already happening. There's many organizations, I think, that try to do this. In some ways, my analysis pushes it a little further by saying, it's not only about fighting racism, it's also about recognizing the value of people and making more visible those who are never visible, trying to really be much more sensitive to respecting the dignity of people in the workplace. And we know from recent studies that employers, it's a study of uh, health workers, immigrants in Boston by Aaron Kelly and Lisa Berkman, I think, at Harvard and MIT. And they found that in this field, giving employees the opportunity to have work flexibility so that they can bring their mother to the doctor, their elderly mother, or can be there for their children when needed, it creates a sense that they are treated as human beings and it translates into them being much more committed to their employer and have more loyalty and more engagement, even cognitive engagement toward their work. So that's an indication of the importance, I think, that there's, I think, a dividend for employers who, instead of just try to push their workers to be more productive, often it boomerangs because people feel dehumanized. And if you think of the recent strike, for instance, the Amazon strike, I mean, right. one of their demands was, can we please have time to go to the restroom? Well, what is more human than that? You know, yeah. And for employers not to acknowledge the need of workers, you really feed the negative work culture that really creates as a lot of downsides. So we could argue that it's very much in the interest of employers to register that. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly hear these stories about places where people don't feel like they have time to even go to the bathroom or aren't allowed to take a break to go to the bathroom. And those are yeah. certainly extreme situations that need to be dealt with. You said earlier that the problem with meritocracy as a concept is that people don't start off equally, right? So I guess the question is, in the spirit of equity, how do you balance the idea of trying to 
treat everyone equally while also celebrating their differences and acknowledging those uneven starting points that they had and maybe even the inequitable day-to-day circumstances that they have to deal with. It feels a little bit paradoxical, I'm sure. Yes, it does. And uh, in some ways, I deal with this because I mentor a lot of graduate students. And you can see, you know, some are children of professors and they start in academia already extremely well equipped to be very, very successful and others don't. So how do you distribute your time, which is a very scarce resource in this context, which parallels many, many uh, workplaces? And I think you kind of need to balance the interest. Like my personal interest is to have the best student possible. But at the same time, if I deal with my graduate students so instrumentally, it really doesn't create a nice community or a nice culture. Employers who are just too intransigent and focus on success and on celebrating the highest achievers will find themselves with a lot of trouble down the line. So does that answer your question? I'm not sure I'm getting to it. To me, it's hard, right? But it is a balancing act to figure out how to create an inclusive environment to create equity, but also to give people a boost who didn't start out with the same. I mean, it's a go back to your escalator mm-hmm. analogy that you used in terms of kids being born into the right families and the right circumstances. I mean, people still need that. That opportunity gap persists into their time of working. And mm-hmm. you've constantly got to be looking for that and trying to, at the same time, not unfairly treat somebody who is in the alternate situation. I agree with you. I mean, I'm not a management expert, but my sense is sometimes some of the most competitive and high-performing workers are also very, very needy in terms of attention. And I imagine the role of a good manager is also to tell them once in a while, okay, we all appreciate you. You're amazing. But you cannot be patted on the back each time we celebrate people. This is a good that needs to get around, be distributed. And you understand, I appreciate you, but there's a lot of other people who do important work or are invisible. So it's just normal that different people be celebrated at different times. And that might mean, for instance, thinking seriously. This is an article that I co-authored with two other academics that came out in the Harvard Business Review. Who is going to be seated in the center of the group and who's going to be and the margin invisible. There's a lot of groups that remain always invisible. And often this might be older workers, people who didn't have a straight professional trajectory. So celebrating diversity of trajectory or even older women who are often invisible or older people in general. So I guess what would define a good manager is not only someone who can get a lot of productivity out, but also someone who's aware of some very successful people are very narcissistic and they have a need to be celebrated that is absolutely endless and it absolutely is not fair to everyone. Yeah. I mean, as a manager in an organization, even as a team member, as an individual contributor, you need to figure out kind of how to navigate those nuances, right? And to be accepting of people's different styles, but also not putting up with their less desirable traits. As I say to people, like being your authentic self doesn't mean that you hang up the obligation to try and bring your best self to work every day. You you have to find the right balance. Recognition is one of the things you really focused on in the book. The idea of truly being seen, being recognized for who you are, having somebody's full worth being considered. What are some of the ways that recognition can be built? Because I know that was a big part of what you put into the book. For people who don't know what recognition is, I should start by saying it's not like 
I recognize that this is an apple on the table, or I recognize that this is Jim on the street. It's really about the fact that our self-identity as human being is built through the eyes of others. And this is something that we can only get from other human beings. And it's about defining other people as worthy. The counterpart is stigmatization, defining people negatively. So I think to prosper as human beings, you really need to be surrounded by a context where you experience this, which is why AI workers, for instance, who interact all day with the laptop and who are evaluated by algorithms, I think we will have to figure out ways for them to find this sense of recognition at work because it's really going to be, and it is being depleted. People I know who work at Google or to work in the electronic field, art field, they talk a lot about how their life is largely about running marathons and doing other things outside of work because it allows them to create the community that they cannot have by uh, working with data all day. So I think that is very, very important. But uh, being aware of that this is such an elementary human needs and we all, it's often in the background, people don't register how important it is. And the opposite, stigmatization, there's this huge literature on how microaggression, the daily experience of racism, gets under the skin to create enormous health problems. Epidemiologists use the term allostatic load to talk about how they say how inequality gets under the skin, because little by little confronting the microaggression every day is just extremely uh, negative for your health. So how I explain in the book how to sustain it, it's not only, I mean, some people will say meditation, mindfulness. I'm not a psychologist. Instead, I'm a cultural sociologist. So I'm talking about the importance of creating an environment which contains a lot of narratives or stories that demonstrate to us how diverse groups are being valued. And uh, one example would be we did uh, with some students, I did a content analysis of the 73 presidential speeches that Trump uh, gave in his first electoral campaign. And his speeches were very much oriented toward the working class to tell them, we know that you're good people, you pay your bills, you try to keep your kids out of trouble, you're survivors, yet you feel very devalued in American society because manufacturing has been going downhill. And it's not your fault. It's the fault of globalization. So we're going to do MAGA, make America great again by bringing industries back. But we're also going to kick immigrants out because immigrants are taking your jobs. So this, for me, was a really powerful example of how, on the one hand, it was very systematically giving recognition to workers, recognizing their complaints, their sense of being left behind. And on the other hand, he was doing this by treating the value of immigrants as a zero sum in relation to their worth, which is ridiculous since they contribute so much to society. So one question we have to contemplate is, is it possible, and I think it totally is possible, to think about elevating the recognition of several groups at once. One of the basic theories that you've certainly heard about, tribalism, the idea that it's human nature to adore your group and put everyone else down. Well, it's often described as central to human nature, but my own belief is we don't know much about human nature. People who write about this often use very limited evidence, and there's just a lot of narration about human nature more than serious research. And in fact, we go through a lot of our lives being either indifferent to others or being tolerant. I may or may not be close to my neighbor, but, you know, she leads her life. I lead my life. 
Sometimes we chat around the garbage can, but it's not like I feel like either I have to embrace her or hate her. This is not at all how most human beings go about leading their lives. So I think we need to really revisit how the group boundaries are drawn to make more rule for what I call a bagel model, which instead of being in and out, you have a middle zone, which is just, in fact, leaves a lot of room for coexistence. But we're talking now in the middle of this devastating attack by Hamas on Israel, and that's an extremely explosive topic. And the whole country in the US or around the world now is mobilized around talking about this. But I just want to mention it to say that to force everyone to take positions and use this to reshuffle the pecking order between groups, I think, is quite counterproductive as opposed to taking the position of we're all witnessing what's happening there and we all should have solidarity for all human beings. It's a terrible situation of And uh, I have three kids in college, and they're telling me how much to the social media and otherwise, many, many kids are being forced to take position in very radical way in one in support of Israel or Hamas, which is just ridiculous. So moving away from this tribalism, I think, is essential moving forward. You know, this idea that you mentioned in passing earlier of ordinary cosmopolitanism or ordinary universalism. You know, the idea of focusing on the things that we all have in common rather than the differences, it's a simple concept, but I think for a lot of people, it is really hard. I know you cast doubt upon the concept of tribalism, but gosh, there are a lot of examples out there where it seems to be the modus operandi of a lot of groups and societies. Yeah, I so agree with you, but there's also 40% of the American population doesn't vote. And a lot of them vote, I think, because of the conspiracy theory, because they don't like politicians. But many people don't vote because they are tolerant or they don't care. I think we need to shed more light on uh, people who are middle of the road because there's plenty of them out there and people who are apolitical as well. So uh, if the news is always the extremist, and that has been demonstrated by studies of the social media, that organizations that promote extremist anti-Muslim Uh, positions get far more coverage than those that don't. So uh, it's also what creates clicks. The whole big click culture is really pushing for greater radicalization. And many people are writing about that as well. You've mentioned AI a few times in the interview and our discussion. And certainly one of the things you read about in the news is that some of these AI tools, when unleashed on the internet and everything that's on the internet, quickly demonstrate racism and intolerance in their answers, because that's essentially what they've digested. And then it reflects to us a reality, which I think is much worse than what is actually happening. People who are indifferent don't respond to surveys. So the response in the surveys are generally much more extreme than what the population thinks. You mentioned earlier that you interviewed some change agents. You talked about Hollywood types and creatives, but you also interviewed people who are kind of on the social services front lines. So it was a much broader mix than just the creative people. Uh, But what did you learn from that part of your interview population? Well, that uh, narrative change is also crucial there. So I remember interviewing one person who works for Feeding America, one of the largest organizations that supports food banks uh, and fighting hunger in the U.S., And this person was talking to me about the importance of moving away from a narrative that is about charity, 
which really has a paternalistic aspect to it, you know, or those poor people, they cannot manage, we're going to help them, to a framework that is much more in line with what we're talking earlier. Some people are on the escalators, others are not. If you're lucky enough to be in the top 50% of the population, give some. So it's a very different framework that is more oriented towards solidarity than charity. So that's a small example in a field that is very practical in terms of giving people resources they need, where even a change in framing makes a very big difference in how the recipient receives the support, whether they think, oh, those are the human beings who care for me, because as human beings, we all support each other versus, oh, those are people who think of me as weak and needy, and they're helping me, but in part in a very paternalistic way, which is not as solidaristic. So There's other examples. Uh, For instance, Rashad Robinson, who is the leader of an organization called Color of Change, and it's organizations that dedicated to uh, helping to get the vote out in African-American neighborhood. But one of the things they're doing is also using these voting campaign to get uh, support for prosecutors in areas where the prosecutors are elected to limit racial violence by the police. So there's all forms of contributions that uh, are emerging from the field. Yeah, I mean, you use a term in this part of the book, cultural entrepreneurs. Talk about what you really mean by that term and the kind of impact that cultural entrepreneurs are trying to have. I think I gave the example of a pro Winfrey as a woman who, of course, is an extremely successful entrepreneur. And she played an important role in destigmatizing domestic violence, right, and violence toward women. But she also embraces the get rich idea. And uh, she's kind of combining a recognition focus with what we could call a neoliberal focus of promoting, you know, success through the market. And the same thing is now I'm just blocking on her name, Marta. Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart. As for Martha Stewart, she played a very important role in teaching working class women how to become middle class goddess by teaching them domesticity, how to decorate nice Christmas table or whatever. So she's also destigmatizing a deeply stigmatized group, the homemakers who were very much viewed and construed by second wave feminism as women who were dependent and lack agency to women who could really realize themselves by creating a beautiful home. But she also did it in the framework of entrepreneurialism and neoliberalism. So those are two examples. And I also talk about a number of other writers who are trying to humanize capitalism. Heather Boucher, for instance, who now serves on the Council of Economic Advisors of Biden, is one person I interviewed. And there are several foundations like Felicia Wong, the president of the Rosebud Foundation, who are really fighting to try to, they say, okay, we have capitalism, it's not going to go away. But we can also have a capitalism that is far more fighting solidarity as opposed to simply, you know, creating more and more. You talk as well about recognition chains, the idea that individuals and organizations can create a force multiplier of sorts by connecting to others. Talk a little bit more about what you mean by that term and how these chains kind of develop and take hold. Sure. So one example is I talk about the Ford Foundation, one of the largest foundation in the country. The president who resigned recently created a huge initiative to combat inequality. And instead of only focusing on the redistribution of resources and working closely with economists, that was the 
case in previous decade with programs such as Moving to Opportunity, which aimed to move low-income people from one kind of neighborhood to another. He created an approach as four pillars, and one of them is what he called changing hearts and minds, and that was focused on narrative change. So they focused on creating, for instance, films. The example of the film Made, which is available on Netflix and which present indigenous domestic workers in Mexico City who work in a middle class family. But the whole film is about the, the maids. It's not about the family. And it's very interesting because as you watch it, you realize the stories are never about the maids. It's always about the rich family. And it could be viewed as a three-dimensional description of these women. And also it humanizes them. It moves us away from the stereotypes. So this is very characteristic of how narrative change is produced. And the people I interviewed, you know, really talk about the ways in which the Ford Foundation made this possible. They work closely with another group I interviewed, the National Alliance for Domestic Workers, which is headed by Agent Poo, who is a great labor leader. So what is the chain is really the collaboration between the cultural creators and the organizations such as Ford or the National Alliance for Domestic Workers which can scale up the discourse to the point where it can really have a social impact. So if I'm sitting in my office in front of my laptop and I'm thinking great thoughts, I'm not going to create much narrative change. But if you connect your own capacity to create different narratives with those very important infrastructures that are diffusing messaging, it makes a very, very big difference. The sociological message there is really about We can create these changes. It's already happening and it can happen more. So I give the example of same-sex marriage, which is a change created by the law, of course, against the work of a great many uh, social movement activists and journalists and all kinds of other knowledge experts. But when these laws were passed in 32 states, already it was possible to see a drastic decline in the number of attempted suicide among LBGTQ Mm -hmm. youth because they thought, okay, now we have access to marriage. We're not viewed as pariahs anymore, as weirdos. Even laws are sending really clear messages about who is viewed as a valued member of the society. You talk about how some of these traditional social structures reemerge, right? We've talked in the course of the discussion about the divisiveness and extremism that exists, not just in the US, but in a number of countries. And yet, ultimately, you present a hopeful message. What underpins your message of hope? Well, I think it's a little bit what I just said, the fact that changes is happening. It's already happened a lot, and it can happen more. And uh, a lot can be done by all of us to to support change in the way that we make decisions on a daily basis. For instance, if we think about what kind of life do we want our children to have? If you are upper middle class, you can decide to move in a neighborhood where everyone else is upper middle class. And then your child has far less exposure to a wide range of people and may not necessarily know much about the life of those who are less privileged. And this is very much in line. There's been over the last few years Books written on the themes are like excellent sheep or helicopter parenting or opportunity hoarding, how upper middle class parents are just trying to give all the resources possible to their kids to get them in universities such as Harvard, where I teach. And that's not necessarily very good for the children because they end up feeling like they are a little 
competitive machines and that the their parents may not love them if they don't succeed. So there are other approach to this. You can decide to put your kid in a more diverse environment where they will also learn to appreciate and understand different people. So a lot of the basic choices that we all make in the course of our everyday life can be made and oriented more toward creating a more pluralistic society. So that's one thing that I propose. And I also discuss how organizations then create a more equal environment by, for instance, putting in place family-friendly policies that also acknowledge that men and women are also caregivers. They're not only workers. So I'm optimistic because a lot of these things are already taking place and much more is possible. So what thought would you leave us with in terms of a call to action? Well, it's a very agentic message, the book, that we can all make a difference, but it's also a collective message because all decision makers, policymakers, politicians are making a lot of decisions that can narrow who belongs, who feels worthy, and that can broaden it. And I think we should maybe learn to read our political reality not only through our pocketbook, but also through what messages are being sent to the largest population about uh, who's in and who's out. And creating a successful society is also creating a society where more people feel that they're invested in the collective world that we create together. So it could be read as a very Pollyannish message, But I think, on the other hand, that if we don't give ourselves the tools we need to think about our societies differently, it's very hopeless. Hopelessness is the alternative. And I don't think that works very well. We know it's not working well. I talked about the mental health crisis of the Gen Zs, but American society is going through a mega mental health crisis right now. So I think this can very well force us to rethink our priority when we think about our collective living. All right. We covered a lot of ground. We did. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's very nice. Absolutely. I appreciate your perspectives. I certainly learned a lot from reading the book. It was thought-provoking, and hopefully others will pick it up and read it as well. Well, I certainly hope so. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I want to thank Michelle for joining me today to discuss her new book, Seeing Others, and its focus on the importance of recognition being truly seen in creating an inclusive workplace and an inclusive society. Much to consider and reflect on from our discussion. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.